thank you, Bilahari, and thank you for inviting me. And um, I'm very happy to um, uh, say a few things at the start of this uh, very interesting uh, conference. Uh, let me just start by saying it's a very interesting theme, an important one. Uh, but uh, by way of uh, uh, preliminary observation, uh, let me first say that both the Middle East uh, and East Asia uh, are undergoing transformation. Uh, they're both regions that um, need transformation uh, and are in various stages of transformation. Uh, East Asia is, of course, not monolithic. There are countries at different stages of development and each group of countries, lower income, middle income, upper middle income, and the more advanced East Asian economies, uh, are going through transition uh, in a very uncertain global environment, requiring some new policies and strategies, and with uncertain futures. So this is not a case of one region simply borrowing from another that has already succeeded and achieved uh, uh, a stage that everyone uh, aims to attain, but about two regions that are still being transformed and are still on a journey. Uh, second point I want to make is that the circumstances in which uh, some of the East Asian economies uh, achieved significant progress in economic development. Uh, the so-called Asian Tigers, Japan before them, some of the ASEAN, ASEAN countries after. Uh, the circumstances in which they achieved it, particularly for the Japan and the East Asian Tigers in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and to some extent the 1990s, uh, those circumstances are, uh, have changed. Uh, the global environment has changed, and that too should um, uh, inform us when we think about the transferability of experience of East Asia uh, to other regions like the Middle East. Uh, it is not a complete disqualifier, as I'll come to in a minute, uh, but that fundamental shift in the global environment um, should inform us when we think of how the experience of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, applies to development challenges and strategies in today's world. Uh, in particular, um, we have a, a less confident uh, global leadership in the United States, uh, and we have a, a US that is less uh, supportive of an open multilateral economic order. Uh, this itself is the result of uh, success in globalization, uh, openness, and the uh, remarkable increase in trade, investment, flows of ideas and technology over a period of four decades uh, did succeed in rebalancing the global economy. In particular, it succeeded in uplifting, in China uplifting itself, and that success uh, by its very nature, breeds discord, and it breeds discomfort on the part of established leaders. So globalization success does breed discord with that very same open and free international order. But it also reflects 
uh, I believe, uh, inadequacies in domestic policy, not unique to the United States, I would say in, in many countries around the world, both advanced and emerging and de developing, those inadequacies in domestic policy have also bred uh, a loss of confidence in openness, in integration with the global economy, and a loss of um, a sense of international purpose. So that too is a fundamental change in the international environment that we have to uh, bear in mind. Thirdly, we are also in a slower growth world today than we were three, four, five decades ago. We are in a slower growth world. And private investment activity especially, wherever you look, in the United States, in China, in India, in Europe, in Japan, private investment activity is far less vibrant than it used to be. Uh, that too is part of the new uh, environment. Still, I think pessimism uh, around uh, integrating with the global economy is vastly overstated, vastly overstated in the commentaries that you would read, also vastly overstated, I think, in a lot of the political uh, narrative. <clears throat> it is still today a much more open global economy than it was. So the momentum has slowed, confidence has, has, has dimmed, but the state of the world today is far more integrated than it used to be. And the opportunities for developing regions to integrate with the world and get benefit from that integration, benefit both through access to markets, but more importantly, benefit through the flow of ideas and technology, that learning, that benefit is still very significant. And it would be folly to think inward and move inward in this environment because we lose a very significant opportunity for growth, for inclusive growth, and for uplifting our populations. So the pessimism, the environment has changed. It is a more difficult and complex environment, but the pessimism over integration in the global economy is vastly overstated. Both mid the Middle East and East Asia need to adapt to this new environment, need to adjust their strategies, embark on both some new strategies as well as pursue some old strategies with greater persistence, discipline, and commitment in order to do well in this new environment. And I would say, quite frankly, that both regions are significantly underperforming their potential. Both, both the developing regions of mid, the Middle East and East Asia are still significantly underperforming their potential. Uh, with the exception of uh, China, which um, is now in a, in a phase of gradually slowing its economy, <clears throat> I would say <clears throat> the economies of Southeast Asia, the developing economies of Southeast Asia, are underperforming their potential by about two percentage points of GDP each year two percentage points of growth each year. They are, it's a rapidly growing region, but it should be growing much faster. The economies of the Middle East are underperforming their potential, I would say by about four percentage points each year. Significant underperformance. Now that also gives you some cause for optimism because it's not as if there's some structural features of the global economy that are holding us back. If we apply if we 
develop and apply and, persist and have persistence with the right strategies, we can be growing much faster than today because the potential is there. The potential in ASEAN is there, the potential in the Middle East is there, and we are still underperforming our potential in both regions. So both need transformation, both need to adapt to this global environment. The Middle East, of course, has some unique challenges. We all know about the geopolitics, we all know about the regional politics, and the geopolitics that, is, uh, that, that feeds on uh, regional instability. Um, importantly though, uh, it's not regional instability and geopolitics that uh, exists in its own sphere. It is in fact fueled by and reinforces the social and economic uh, difficulties uh, that uh, the region uh, uh, is, is beset with. Uh, and that interaction, uh, that intersection of economic and social challenges and difficulties with regional instability and global uh, instability is of course a, a very potent uh, intersection. What is the uh, state, basic state of affairs on the economic and social side of things. Uh, first, it's a very young region, uh, one of the youngest regions in the world, not as young as sub-Saharan Africa, but just imagine almost half of the population of the Middle East is below the age of 25, almost half. And uh, almost a third of the population is below the age of 15. These are still kids in school or not yet in school. So it is a very young uh, population. But it is one with very high rates of um, unemployment and underemployment amongst youth. In fact, one of the highest rates of unemployment uh, and underemployment of youth. More especially for, for women, for young, young women, and in fact, more especially for those with a tertiary education, those with more education have got higher rates of unemployment uh, in the Middle East. So there's some challenges which I, I shouldn't really say they're unique to the Middle East, but they're particularly pronounced uh, in the Middle East. That too shows potential. That too shows potential. That's actually a source of current underperformance, the failure to provide jobs, the failure to unleash productivity, that's a source of underperformance, but it shows that catch-up is possible. Catch-up is possible. Uh, thirdly, I mentioned the regional and geopolitical situation. I mentioned the um, inadequacies of providing jobs for young population. But thirdly, the Middle East, of course, faces sharper problems than most regions um, as the world uh, adapts to a low-carbon future. Uh, which is going to come. It may come with some disruption. It will come with disruption uh, around the world, but it will come. And the Middle East, more than most regions, needs to diversify, find alternate sources of growth and upliftment for its populations. The good news is that most leaders in the Middle East, at least the more forward-looking countries, are 
very not only aware of this, but are determined to make this transition, make this transition towards lesser dependence on oil production and revenues, lesser dependence on the public sector, typically fueled by oil, oil revenues, lesser dependence on the public sector to provide for jobs and growth. The UAE, Saudi Arabia, and some others are determined to make this transition. They formulated plans, some very ambitious strategies, uh, and they're now embarked on it. And it will require sustained effort, sus political leadership and sustained effort to achieve these Im ambitions against some initial odds. And I believe it is possible. It is also in the interest of the rest of the world, it's in the interest of us in East Asia and the rest of the world, that the Middle East does succeed. We all have an interest in the Middle East making this transition. And we all know that failure to make that transition will have consequences that are not merely economic. Singapore is, in fact, uh, very keenly engaged with the countries of the Middle East, um, wanting to participate in their growth, contribute to their growth, as well as collaborate and provide ways in which, um, uh, to the small extent possible, uh, our own capabilities uh, can be transferred through training, through engagement with their own institutions. We are doing this with the UAE, with Saudi Arabia, and in fact, we were the first non-Middle Eastern country to have a free trade agreement with the GCC um, more than 10 years ago, although it was ratified in 2013. Um, so it's a different era, different era from when East Asia some East Asian countries um, um, ascended on that development ladder. Uh, it's not, neither, country, neither region is monolithic, but there are some common challenges that we both face. Uh, and the first common challenge is that of maximizing human potential, or what the, economy, the economists would call human capital. How do we maximize human potential? That's still the the uh, source and also the raison d'etre of economic development. How do we maximize human potential? Uh, I spoke earlier about the challenges, particularly pronounced in the Middle East. And really, they're not, we're not talking here about um, uh, very fancy new strategies. We're talking about determined application of strategies that are now well-tested around the world, strategies which actually we have learned from um, in East Asia. Uh, the problems in the Middle East, in South Asia, in Sub-Saharan Africa are not at their heart very complex problems when you think about human capital. They are problems about applying well-tested strategies in preschool education, basic education and tertiary education to be able to maximize the potential of young people and develop in them skills that are matched to the needs of the market. And those needs of the market in the East Asian experience have, of course, evolved because as you succeed in one stage of development, you move on to the next, and you find that you need new skills and aptitudes to succeed in that market. And that basic ability to first provide broad-based access when kids are young and to develop skills that match the needs of the changing market as they get older, that basic orientation in government and the strategies that attempt to achieve this uh, are what it takes. 
It's not about new technologies, fancy new curricula or pedagogic methods, but it's basically about providing access to a decent education at a very young age, particularly for, for girls in some regions of the world, and ensuring that as, they, as the kids grow up, that they receive principally, for the majority of the population, a skills-oriented education that gives them confidence when they enter the workforce. And here too, of course, uh, Singapore is, by the way, um, very keen to collaborate with the Middle East. In fact, we had um, set up in 2007 the Emirates College for Advanced Education. Uh, we, in fact, sent the first vice-chancellor uh, for the college. We also had the first um, uh, vice-chancellor or president of KAUST in Saudi Arabia. Um, and we are now embarked on other collaborative initiatives, including the Regional Vocational Training Centre in Jordan, which is doing quite well. It's a regional centre with um, officials and trainers and educationists from around the Middle East uh, who are um, taking advantage of that uh, centre. So it's an area where Singapore, for one, um, is, is very keen to collaborate with uh, our partners in the Middle East. That's human capital. Second, infrastructure. Not a surprise. Huge opportunity in both the Middle East and East Asia. Uh, the numbers are large. In fact, the numbers required are staggering because of the demographics. Because of the demographics, the amount of new infrastructure you need, I would say both the dem demographics and the fact that you need to have significantly more urbanization, but urbanization in modern cities with economic activities uh, around them that attract young people and provide them good jobs. The needs in terms of infrastructure are very substantial. And it will have to be infrastructure that builds in sustainability because a very large amount of infrastructure is going to be required in just the next 10 to 15 years. In fact, globally, we're going to see a doubling of the world's infrastructure in the next 15 years in order to cope, to, to cope with this demographic change as well as to succeed in urbanization, a doubling of global infrastructure. And if we don't build sustainability into it upfront, we are going to lock ourselves in to an unsustainable future. So it's not just about infrastructural spending and financing, it's about the greening of all new infrastructure and the rehabilitation of existing infrastructure to also make it more green and sustainable. Financing is important. The scale of infrastructure required is beyond the capacity of the public sector, both nationally as well as the international public sector. They will have to be involved. The public sector is critical in providing for policy certainty, regulatory clarity, and to mitigate risk, because infrastructure is still too risky a game in the emerging and developing world, as far as private investors are concerned. We have to de-risk infrastructural investment. So the public sector plays a critical role, but we do need to find new ways of attracting private capital into infrastructural investment in the emerging world, in the Middle East, as well as in East Asia, in ASEAN included. We need new ways of financing infrastructure, and those ways are available through the development of the domestic capital markets, through pooling of investments across sectors and across geographies, 
because through pooling you also de-risk investments and you attract institutional investors. And of course, by providing clarity in our PPP frameworks, clarity and certainty, including certainty of dispute resolution mechanisms, so that private investors who come in to and in infrastructural investment, you know that you're going to be locked in for a while. They don't have that significant risk that they need to factor in upfront, risk of regulatory changes or political changes that lead to whole, whole projects being undone or rethought. Regulatory clarity and dispute resolution is a critical uh, requirement. So that's the second point. First I spoke about human capital, then infrastructure. The third one, and I'll, I'll be very brief now, which is, uh, has been very essential to the East Asian story and remains so for the future, is openness. Uh, there's been a lot talked about industrial strategies and uh, uh, you know, state-driven capitalism and so on and so forth. But the most fundamental trait of East Asia um, both for the initial group of Japan and the East Asian Tigers, as well as um, uh, the ASEAN countries that have succeeded, the reasons for their growth has simply been openness and integration with the global economy. I spoke about this earlier, and I just want to emphasize again that the main benefit of that openness was the learning that comes with it. The learning that comes from your customers when you're an exporter, the specifications that they demand, that are beyond what you're initially doing and that you need to adapt to and provide. The learning from importers with more sophisticated components and machinery. The learning from direct investment. And the learning from just opening ourselves to a world of technology and ideas. Openness is the most important industrial strategy. And some of the more intrusive forms of industrial strategy that were possible in Northeast Asia especially in an earlier era are now no, no longer possible. First, they didn't succeed as much as was, is, uh, is often claimed. Those in more involved industrial strategies were never that much of a success. Uh, second, it is no longer possible under today's global rules. Uh, we need to have more market-oriented industrial strategies where the role of the government, the role of um, state agencies is to speed up learning speed up the diffusion of new knowledge amongst large firms and small, foreign firms and local, speed up that diffusion of learning. That's the primary role of modern-day industrial policy. Fourth, financial inclusion. Again, a challenge for both regions. Um, uh, the, the figures are again quite stark. Less than half of the population in the Middle East as access to a bank account or an account with some financial institution. And the numbers are not so different in uh, developing uh, East Asia, in the developing uh, countries of East Asia, not so different. Um, it's again an opportunity. And it's an opportunity not just through traditional financial institutions and sectors, but through FinTech. FinTech is potentially a game changer when it comes to financial inclusion. So we're not talking here about, again, the most fancy new technologies, but simply about reaching the unbanked. Because without the ability to get a small amount of credit, without the ability to insure your crops or insure against weather uncertainty, 
Without the basics of finance, it is very difficult to have inclusive growth for agricultural populations, for rural, pop rural populations, or for populations that are widely dispersed, which is also the case um, in parts of the Middle East. So FinTech is potentially a game changer. And here again, we're very keen on collaboration. In fact, uh, in Singapore, we are already actively collaborating with our partners in the Middle East. Uh, and with Saudi Arabia this year as uh, president of the G20, it's very keen to take this agenda forward. Uh, finally, um, the climate crisis is a challenge for wherever we are in the world. And it's a particular challenge in the years to come in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia, in ASEAN. Um, I spoke earlier, of course, about the fundamental challenge in the Middle East of making a transition away from fossil fuel production as a source of economic growth. But there's also a challenge from climate change itself, the direct effects of climate change. Uh, the Middle East is going to be a region that's going to suffer from um, uh, extreme heat. Uh, it will also be a region that's already um, suffering from water crises and water stress is going to be a major phenomenon across the world, but the Middle East is going to have it uh, sharper than most regions. In fact, even to, uh, by, by most projections today, uh, seven out of the 10 most water-stressed cities in the world uh, in 20 years' time will be in the Middle East, seven out of 10. Uh, and with water stress will come uh, stress in, with regard to food supply, uh, particularly uh, cereal. Uh, and the Middle East is now on current trajectory, on a business-as-usual trajectory, uh, uh, headed for a future of significant dependence on food imports, much more so than today. So we have a crisis on our hands. We have a crisis not just because of the production structure of the Middle East in the long term, but also uh, the need to mitigate and adapt to climate change because its direct effects on society and economy are going to be severe. Southeast Asia faces some of the same challenges. Uh, there are parts of Southeast Asia, particularly in Indochina, that are low-lying and are going to be the, amongst the most vulnerable uh, to climate change as the oceans warm. It is a very serious threat all over the world and our two regions have to begin addressing this challenge boldly, with persistence, and with a long-term commitment independent of changes in government. So our, that's all I'd like to say by way of opening remarks. We face common challenges. There's much to learn from each other. There's much to learn from examples within our own regions. We shouldn't simply be thinking about applying old strategies developed in the 60s, 70s, 80s to today's world because the world has changed. But there are some basic truths in economic and social development that do remain unchanged, particularly how we go about maximizing the potential, the human potential of every citizen in our population. And I'm glad that we're now all very, there's no country which denies that basic fact, uh, providing equal access and high quality education to all, including female populations, is now a commitment on the part of all countries and most especially in the part of several Middle Eastern countries who've made very bold changes in policy in recent years in that regard.
we have to get on with it, we have to persist, and we must never give up on this most essential objective of economic and social development. Thank you very much.